Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today. My name is Dan Pybus, a director in our London transfer pricing team specialising in financial transactions. Welcome to our episode regarding the delineation section of the OECD discussion draft on financial transactions. This forms part of a five-part series covering different aspects of the paper. I'm here today with Krishnan Chandrasekhar, our Global Financial Services Transfer Pricing Leader based in the Chicago office. So Krish, to begin with, perhaps I could ask you, what is the BEPS activity that this part of the paper is looking to specifically address? Thanks, Dan. It's a fair question because depending on which jurisdiction you talk to, there has been debate on whether there really is a BEPS issue and whether the mandate of this paper is really to address a, a material base erosion problem or whether the focus of this paper really should be around pricing transactions where we required and wanted guidance for a while and have we been missing it. But having said that, I think the primary objective here around this section is to evaluate elements around both how companies establish their capital structure, so questions around the right quantum of debt or the level of debt capitalization in an entity, and it then goes on to connected aspects around how that decision and how that establishment of debt level impacts subsequent pricing for that debt and issues around it, such as credit ratings, treasury activities, and things of that nature. So I think it starts off with an assessment of capital structure, and then uses that to then build and evaluate what the consequences are of that decision, both from an operational treasury perspective, as well as impact on ratings and pricing and things of that nature. Okay, thanks, Krish. And I, I guess, interestingly, at the outset, the discussion draft makes commentary regarding the interaction of domestic capital structure rules and the guidance in this paper. Do you see any potential conflicts here? Yep, does seem to be based on informal discussions we've had with working party reps, this does appear to be a contentious area, an area reason why we don't have consensus document here. I think the U.S. has publicly noted that the issue of capitalization, the thin cap issue, is one which local law deals with, for example, in the U.S. So observation one is there are relevant domestic rules around thin capitalization that already exist in a number of jurisdictions that are part of this effort. The other point, and that's related to your first question around what's the BEPS issue here, is there have already been BEPS work streams that have been designed to address perceived or real uh, base erosion issues with respect to, for example, interest as dealt with in Action 4 and with hybrid instruments. And so there's a real question of whether there would be the potential to reach consensus around this issue because every indication is there are at least one or two influential members in this group that feel that the mandate of this group is not so much to address a question of an arm's length level of debt to the extent one believes such an issue exists and rather the mandate should be to focus on, on pricing methods. Okay, so we've talked about the uncertainties in terms of the discussion draft and capital structure. How does all of this interact with treaties, though? Yeah, here too, I mean, I think if you look at where transfer pricing comes into a treaty, I think if you look at Article 9, there is discussion in there around how that applies to the pricing of transactions between associated enterprises. And there is a para in there towards the end of Article 9, if you see the commentary that discusses in the commentary that this may be used to also evaluate questions of thin capitalization. Now, there is a counter view to this where 
some jurisdictions would argue that this is not the only place where one would address questions around thin capitalization and elements like the savings clause that's in Article 1 of the treaty allows local country regulations to govern the thin cap question. And so I think, again, consistent with my earlier comment around controversy around whether the level of debt should be addressed here, I think there is a camp in the group that feels like the savings clause, you know, gives precedence to kind of local regulation, whereas other jurisdictions, I think, feel that Article 9 is the only avenue to which they can deal with the tin cap question, and so they want to use transfer pricing to, to address this perceived abuse. Okay, that makes sense. I guess if we shift our focus away from capital structure for a second, one of the other areas the discussion draft looks at is the role of functions and decision-making with respect to intercompany lending and treasury functions. Do you think that was the right focus area, and how does it sit from a U.S. standpoint? Yeah, and I think this is an area where I think in an effort to get broader consistency with the other work streams, what has ended up being reflected in the discussion draft has been a wholesale movement of the risk framework under the actions 8 to 10, and that being applied almost directly in the context of the Treasury transactions framework that this discussion draft is trying to address. And in doing that, I think there are some observations that are factual and actually potentially useful when thinking about standard treasury liquidity operations. So there is useful discussion around how treasury operations are managed. There's useful discussion around the complexity that has to be dealt with under treasury operations. And there are some relevant connections made, especially in the discussion around cash pools, around how liquidity management needs to take place based on broader corporate strategies. So the point being, there's some useful contributions to be made by the discussion of functions and decision-making. I think where there are some areas of concern or potential controversy, it goes to the area around how much activity is really needed for a number of the transactions that are in consideration for this discussion draft. And as an example, if you think about an entity on a bilateral basis extending debt, there's a question of how relevant and how much intensity is required around functions and monitoring and what does decision-making really look like in this context and how much should that drive kind of the results of the pricing. Similarly, the direct transference of that framework has led to this interesting piece of analysis where there's the extension that potentially, while the borrowing rate might be arm's length, if the full risk framework is not addressed completely at the lender location, there might be yet another third jurisdiction where one might need to allocate returns over a risk-free return. And so those sorts of issues that arise from a direct application of that framework don't necessarily translate well to financial transactions. And so I think it raises some real questions in terms of potential for double taxation, potential for controversy, and the potential introduction of jurisdictions that may not even be a party to the original financial agreement or lending transaction. So you mentioned there, Krish, the interaction already with BEPS Actions 8 to 10. I know one area where taxpayers and tax authorities were looking for more guidance was the the risk-free return and allocation of the residual return, and you alluded to that in your last response. How well has this paper addressed this area, and what uncertainties remain? Yeah, so just pick up from what I was describing. I mean, I think this is a direct result of, of applying a framework that was designed, in my opinion, around trying to address returns for intangibles where there's an element of funding that is important to understand 
but there's the added element of returns that result from an asset that's created from that funding, i.e. intangible assets. So when you have that sort of a framework, then it is important to understand where a funding activity is happening, where activity is happening that actually helps in the ideation and the development of an asset, and then trying to distinguish between returns for those two elements, which makes sense in the context of the 8 to 10 framework. I think taking that framework and applying it directly to what is simply a capital provision or a funding transaction leads to this outcome where, while the agreement or the funding might be between two parties, trying to extend that functional framework is now potentially introducing or having taxpayers having to look at other parties that may not be part of the contractual arrangement. Further, it's also raising the point of whether it's not plausible for capital to have anything but a risk-free return if there's no functional activity associated with it. And I know this is another area of hot debate, not just from a U.S. point of view, but multiple jurisdictions have different views on the amount of functional activity required in jurisdictions to get returns to capital, as well as what that arms-length return to capital should be. So I think those sorts of issues that are broader issues than just for financial transactions are starting to creep in here, which makes it potentially an area where it would be hard to reach consensus because these are areas where tax authorities have been debating these issues for at least the last decade around a number of these matters. Okay, so if we were to speculate, though, in terms of where we might land with regard to this specific part of the paper, where do you think we might end up with this section and the consensus version? Yeah, that's a good question, Dan. It's hard to tell. I mean, as a network, we've been having discussions, you know, with our with practitioners, with clients, with the business community, as well as with tax authorities. And if there's one theme that's coming out from these discussions as we're collating them, is we are struggling to find a common point of view around this particular section of the paper. While there are lots of sections of the paper where there seems to be convergence, this particular area seems to be drawing points of view that seem to be quite divergent. And so there is language that has been introduced there that seems to indicate that there will be local country outs, if you will. So there is, for example, a discussion even in this section around how local jurisdictions might choose to follow different principles from what is noted in this section. But that starts to beg the question of how useful guidance will be if implementation is not mandated or required and different jurisdictions take different paths. So I think it's a long-winded answer, but I think on this particular section is where I feel either they would be easier to get consensus if parts of the section were simply dealt with through other work streams, but otherwise I can see this section bogging down the potential to finalize this discussion draft. Okay, and as a final question, adding a practical lens to all of this, is there anything clients should be thinking about now, even before the final consensus version is released? Yeah, if there's one thing this paper has done, it's definitely increased the volume of debate around these transactions. It has led to acknowledgement around the availability of data and information, and there is a view that the publication of this and the understanding that a number of principles articulated here are broadly consistent with the broader TP guidance that's been issued by the OECD and updated recently and the other work streams. There's a view or a fear, depending on where you're coming from, that tax authorities, especially in a number of the smaller markets or the emerging markets, might go ahead and apply this as guidance that they can use and implement. So once something like this is published, whether it's finalized or not, I think it has enough information in there. It can be interpreted by different jurisdictions in different ways, and some might view it as simply an extension of already existing guidance with more examples and validation, while other jurisdictions that have you know, technical differences in points of view 
might view this as not helpful guidance and decide to adopt local country views. And so I think one message, I guess, for clients is it's important to own the debate and the dialogue on this issue and at least have a defined policy from the client's perspective around why the pricing that they adopt for these transactions and the principles that they're using for things like credit ratings, the principles they're using for coming up with spreads, why those have a basis. If clients have a story and a set of policies, they'll be ahead of the game versus letting tax authorities potentially use this guidance in a local country preferential way. Okay, thank you, Krish, and thank you all for your time today. Please look out for the other episodes in this five-part series, which will cover interest rate pricing, captives, cash pooling, and guarantees.